Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here, and we have a great show for you guys today. Very cool guest. He wrote an article for the Strickland last week about Patrick Williams and about rebuilding while rebuilding in the NBA. Uh, he also is on Twitter at Above the Break 3 and has his own Patreon page linked through there where he does tons of NBA prospect analysis. Gavin, today we have PD Webb on the show. Yeah, we, we get into team building philosophy, and I, I say this about a lot of our guests, and I genuinely believe we, we have a lot of um, some of the smartest basketball guys on Twitter or off Twitter on this podcast. Uh, PD is like the, like the 1% of that group. This guy really, really knows what he's talking about, and he thinks about team building in, in, in a way that I, I guess on the surface, Alex, is, is sort of the consensus, and like he values a lot of the same things that we value. But he does so in an incredibly nuanced way, and he has this understanding of how all the parts kind of fit together and create sort of like an exponential effect in terms of making each other better. Uh, that, that's the best way I can sum it up. But if, if you want to hear the specifics, tune in right now because we're about to talk to PD on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. Starts. Without a five. Ewing for the win. Yes. Up and left. Now fires the three. And he's good. And he's fouled. It's tough. And he's Anthony for three. Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here, as usual. Gavin's back, and we have a really special guest for you guys today. Someone that we've been looking forward to talking to uh, that wrote a really great piece on the Strickland a site that you know I have a little invested interest in uh, about Patrick Williams, but also about the the case for the Knicks to look at a different way of rebuilding and potentially look at next year as a year to look towards the draft once more because of the quality of prospect coming out next year. And I've gone long enough without saying the actual name of the guest. We have PD Webb with us today who goes by at above the break three on Twitter. It's the number three at the end. And uh, he does have a Patreon link on his Twitter as well to reach his work and to help support him. Uh, PD, how you doing, man? And how's everything going for you just life-wise right now? Uh, it's going good. Um, you know, the finish line is in sight for for this draft cycle, hypothetically, and uh, just trying to keep uh, keep putting out good work until that day comes. Yeah, have you uh, have you started to go a little crazy at all with uh, the fact that we're now, you know, it's probably about triple what a normal draft cycle would be because normally it really kicks into gear like after March Madness, like with the heavy heavy stuff leading up to the NBA draft, and there was no March Madness, and everybody's just kind of been looking at the same film, the same clips, everything for the last like six months. And yet I still see opinions changing. I think just by the fact that people keep looking at things and then keep learning new things that they see. But then I, I wonder if at a certain point people might be starting to overanalyze at this point, it might be time to just kind of like put the notebook down for this year and be like, I think we're good. <laughs> I think everything is figured out that should be figured out. I've definitely forgotten some of the opinions that I've had. Like I had to go back and read the Isaiah Coro piece that I wrote like, five months ago because it's just it's so far away like i was like oh yeah i agree with most of these things that i said don't remember saying them really 
because at this point, I feel like I've watched like every single game from every one of these guys. Yeah, um, PD, so we wanted to get into the piece you wrote a little bit. The title is The Case for Patrick Williams or How to Rebuild While Rebuilding. And, and I thought that was that was an apt title because it's, I mean, I, I guess nominally like an argument for the Knicks drafting Patrick Williams, but it sort of develops as an entire um, manifesto on, on how to build a basketball team in 2020. And you have a section of the article where you sort of go over like what are the, the mold or archetypes of of wings on the final eight teams in the NBA playoffs this year and sort of how the Knicks can fit into those benchmarks. And it, it was an interesting concept to me because I always like, I, I try to stop myself from getting too caught up. Like, all right, you have to rebuild this way. This is the way to do it. This is the way the smart organizations do it. When really in general, what the smart organizations have in common rather than prioritizing any, any one quality over everything else um, is that um, they're improvisational and, and they're innovative and, and they're essentially constantly evolving with the times and, and they're willing to go different directions on the path to winning a championship. Um, but you, you're able to to draw some links, I guess, just in terms of the types of wings each team has. And, and I guess I just kind of kind of want to give you a platform to to go off on on generally what you think makes a good um, roster in, in 2020. And I know that's like a, a big macro question, but it, it seems like you have some uh, opinions on core necessities and how the Knicks can get there and how the Knicks might actually be already in a, in a relatively decent position compared to some, to what some pessimists think. Yeah. I think that to be a successful team, um, this year, or even a team that wants to appear to be successful, because I think there's a lot of teams that are taking this sort of blueprint and, and are building towards their own uh, playoff situation, like the Atlanta Hawks spring to mind, is that you get as many guys from 6'5 to 6'10 who can dribble, pass, and shoot while defending multiple positions and uh, who offer positional flexibility and hopefully can fit on the floor at the same time as possible. And, you know, those guys can be. Uh, as similar or as different as, you know, James Harden and P.J. Tucker, two guys that are roughly the same size, but, you know, couldn't be more different basketball players if you really tried. All right. And I guess um, when I was reading this article, my first thought was, all right, what do you what do you make of a team like the Clippers going out in the second round? And I guess, I mean, there's there's obviously there's an argument to be made that it was it was kind of fluky and that if they just obviously kind of put their foot down in game five and, and figure out a way to close that out, that series is over. Maybe in, in a few weeks we would have been talking about the Clippers as NBA champions. But on paper, they sort of embody that philosophy better than any other team in terms of having like multiple similarly sized guys who are all really, really skilled. Like Kawhi Leonard is, I mean, probably outside of LeBron James and, and maybe Luka Doncic, kind of the, the wet dream of that particular type of player. Like everything you could want in a wing outside of maybe um, creativity in his passing and, and overall playmaking. Um, and, and does that sort of get to the root of it in terms of what I'm missing when I'm saying that is that they just didn't have enough playmaking on the wings? Because to me, they sort of built the perfect modern basketball team in, in everything else. I think playmaking is definitely the, the missing equation for the Clippers. They have a lot of guys who are, you know, defensive stalwarts who can shoot a little bit, but they don't necessarily have a connecting piece. Um, while Kawhi has developed fantastically as a passer, you still don't necessarily want him making, you know, 100 pick and roll reads a game. Um, and Paul George, when at his when he's at his best, is um, is a player who creates for himself first and, you know, will create for teammates when necessary, but that's also not his, his forte. 
So I think that it's a mixture of um, a shooting slump, a not particularly wonderful matchup, and the team sort of being created in an image of component pieces, but not necessarily being unified with the five-man lineups they can throw out on the floor. And, and then would you just say a team like the Nuggets is an anomaly, or would you say Nikola Jokic sort of substitutes for having a wing creator by kind of being just a uniquely great passer in NBA history? Because that, that was sort of the other team that didn't necessarily fit that mold. Or, or maybe I'm overlooking the fact that the only reason they beat the Clippers is because they had elite wing defenders who could switch out and, I mean, bother someone like Kawhi Leonard and bother someone like Paul George. Yeah, I think that... that um... You having a center who can pass that well sort of um, is a middle finger to any uh, theory of basketball. It's just like, hey, there's nothing you can really do. Like the playmaking at that point is just find component pieces. And, you know, for what it's worth, the Nuggets have always thought like, well, we're a wing away. You know, that was the ideas behind, you know, uh, behind drafting Michael Porter Jr. in the first place and trying to consistently find a guy who would be able to, you know, guard Braun when, you know, things matter, guard Kawhi when things mattered. And now that they've gotten to the point where they can not necessarily do a great job of that, but do a you know a solid job of that, the winning has has flourished. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Like, so it's that sort of brings us to the next part of the article here, which was that you know maybe more so than looking for that you know playmaker guard that the Knicks you know seemingly have been after for forever in this draft uh, to perhaps look at someone who's more of a project, which, you know, you highlighted Patrick Williams is sort of like, uh, I would say easily top three, like high upside player in this draft, but, you know, definitely has a low floor as well, potentially uh, for if things don't work out. But, you know, I, I think that you laid out a pretty good case for the fact that like maybe this year, you know, that a lot of the teams that you highlight, which to be clear, like in the article, you basically highlighted all of the final, uh, I think it was eight teams that were that made the you know second round of the playoffs, and you know from that point it was just kind of like, well, these are the types of players that they have, and like the most successful ones. And we even saw you know the Gavins in your point, we sort of even just saw that play out with the Clippers. Is the most successful ones tend to have like playmaking wings, um, and but also a, just a a big you know stable of switchable guys that can shoot, they can play defense that can stop the other team and can do enough on offense to, you know, make sure that you win games around those elite level creators. Uh, and there's not really like, I mean, depending on who you talk to, like LaMelo ball is probably the closest thing you're going to find to someone who's going to be an elite creator out of this draft, but mostly for others. And he, there's a lot of questions about how much he can create for himself. Other than that, there's, you know, it's pretty slim pickings for the Knicks to try to find that, sort of savior type player or like player to take them to the next level in this draft. Um, and so it, it might be better to take the high upside swing on a guy like Patrick Williams, even at eight where depending on who you talk to, that could be considered a reach, but for the Knicks, it could play into a strategy of like, look, this year doesn't really matter. You know, just throw these guys out there, throw out RJ and Pat will and Frank and uh, Mitchell Robinson and see how they can develop together and you laid out a really good case of like next year, which we've heard about plenty. We haven't really talked about it a ton on this show yet, but you know, next year's draft is full of, you know, either elite scoring and or playmaking wings, like for the top six, seven slots in the draft, which is crazy. Um, so like what's kind of 
I, I sort of just laid it out a little bit, but what's sort of your philosophy of going after a guy like Pat Will for the Knicks versus even trying to go for someone like maybe Devin Vassell, who, which we'll talk about more in a minute, but like Vassell, you know, Pat Will's teammate has sort of a an easier to project NBA game, maybe like as far as where he will probably end up, but also has kind of less of an upside as a potential like game alterer like Patrick Williams could really be. Just a reminder, today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. I don't know if you guys are like me, but I am a home mechanic. I like to do little things on my car. Uh, I save the big things for the pros, obviously. You know, I'm not going to try to drop my motor out and put a new one in or something on my own. But I do do, you know, little repairs, you know, little cosmetic things usually. Swapping out some little parts, changing fluids, changing my lights out. Uh, in the case of recently changing out my hitch receiver because I was a dummy and uh, had mine rust out and uh, <laughs> from leaving a ball hitch in there for too long, which was not my brightest moment. But, you know, when I go and I want to do these repairs, I want to have an easy experience, particularly with getting the part that I need, because oftentimes it's the least fun part of doing something that should be fun and, you know, let you try something new. You go into the brick and mortar auto parts store and, you know, you just you get asked all these weird questions by the person working there. Of course, they don't have the part for your car because, like, how could they? It's such a tiny little store and there's just hundreds and hundreds of car brands and parts and everything else. So it's, you know, they almost always have to special order it for you. And then you got to wait a number of days or maybe even weeks for it to come in. And when you look at the bill on your way out, you're like, man, I did not think that I was going to be spending that much on this part today. And, you know, there's not really any explanation for it. Well, that's where rockauto.com comes in as the number one resource for home mechanics like you and me. And for anyone, quite frankly, if you're listening and you own an auto parts shop, uh, rockauto.com might be for you too. Because they offer the lowest prices no matter what, no matter who you are, if you're a mechanic, if you're a home mechanic, if, you know, if you just like to hang car parts on your wall, whatever, they're going to give you the best price no matter what. Uh, and they're going to stand by it and they're going to help you out the whole way because it's a family company that cares about making sure that you are satisfied. So if you want to go to rockauto.com today, definitely do check it out. Look at their easy to sort through system. You just click on the model of your car or sorry, the make of your car, then the year, then the model. And then the uh, list of parts are all in there for you to sort through and find what you need for your car. Could not be easier. I had a great time going through, and uh, I've already pinpointed a couple things that I maybe will be doing to my car in the future because I just happened to see the parts on rockauto.com's easy-to-use website. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And if you decide to pull the trigger and get something right locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. So I think the the first thing you have to do when you're looking at an organizational reset is figuring out exactly what you have on your hands. Um, so and what's the best way to put those players in a developmental framework that allows them to grow even if winning is not happening. So like, do either of you believe that RJ Barrett should be a primary creator? Mm, not probably not. He should probably not be secondary. Would be my my take. Okay. 
So then if you want him to be secondary, you either need to, um, you know, build a scheme or, you know, sign a player who will hold enough of a usage that RJ is in his preferred role. Um, and then you have, you know, players like Frank and Mitch, where if you're running a second side pick and roll situation, like you're now enabling them. Um, the next is that like, NBA media has taught us to look like three, four, five, six years into the future for free agency, um, like pretty regularly. Like I, I distinctly remember a graphic like after the the Dwight Mayer of like upcoming future potential free agent disaster situations. But like looking ahead in the draft is generally considered weird. Um, so it's important to mention that like probably the best the best prospect since LeBron, if not like top three prospects since LeBron, um, is coming out next year in Cade Cunningham. And uh, to pick a player who guarantees that you get enough wins to not be in that that uh, circumstance is like the most short-sighted thing you could do. And it's yeah. not just Kate. There's a whole bunch of, you know, six, six plus guys who can dribble past shoot, um, you know, with different flavors or um, with different uh, traits, depending on, you know, where you go. Basically, until you get to like 10. Like next year's draft is absolutely wild. So when you are considering that, you have to look into uh, what do I do to make sure that I'm not going to win my way out of, like, say, trade for Chris Paul? Win my way out of a place that it will up, uh, set my franchise up for 15 years um, to win like six extra games. Yeah, it's we we've we've heard all sides of the Chris Paul debate because we just had Jonathan Macri on, who's not necessarily pro trading for him, but certainly willing to lay out the argument for it. I, I tend to fall more on your side of things, PD, where I'd rather them just really lean in towards development. But as you point out, the line to toe there is how do you do that while still having constructive development and is constructive development just throwing these guys out for a ton of minutes? And and to me, the answer to that is adding as much shooting as you possibly can. It's something I've been harping on this podcast for the last seven or eight months and just having enough spacing that someone like RJ Barrett, you can, and you talk about him specifically in your article, um, just grease the wheels a little bit for him and, and make it so he's not just kind of running his head into a wall over and over again. Same with Frank Nilakina. And give these guys an atmosphere that's productive to develop in while simultaneously, um, again, not capping your ceiling in terms of who you could potentially get in next year's draft. So, I, and, and I guess the question I'd ask for you, um, do you see it the same way? Should their goal just be to, to maximize shooting or like veterans who know what they're doing defensively? I mean, guys like Jay Crowder, guys like Danilo Gallinari, who would potentially make it easier offensively just by having someone you can kind of throw the ball to and could draw some attention um, because you kind of get into um, different skill sets and what skills are, I mean, I mean, the way you phrased it was component skills versus compound skills. And I, and I think you were talking about it more in terms of the long-term future and building um, a complementary lineup. But to me, I, I really think about it just in terms of next season and how you can kind of facilitate development for these guys. I think that it's just shooting. Um, I think that, when you have um, a player like Mitch specifically who lost a year of uh, of on-court development in games um, with the route that he went uh, during his one-and-done year, um, you know, having to play under uh, a coach that wasn't particularly good at his development, you need to find a way to get him as many reps as possible in the best situation as possible. Um, and to me, the best way to do that is, you know, wide spacing um, and, 
and people who can understand the angles of, of getting him lobs and, and trying to keep him on the court without fouls and fouling by keeping their guy in front of him. Um, I think that, like, Gallinari is a, a fine idea, but, like, Gallo is also really good. And, like, I guess taking minutes away from guys who have lacked a structural view of their development, um, who have lacked, like, really good coaching. Like, Tibbs may not be the most popular uh, person in the world, but he's a hell of a teacher. Um, and, you know, Johnny Bryant and, um, and KP are both absolutely fantastic uh, developers. So just getting guys time in a system um, with good teachers is going to be an, a value onto itself and just making sure that they get the most of those, no, uh, those opportunities, not like getting, you know, Gallo an extra 18 shots a game seems to be like uh, serving two masters at once. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too. like speaking of serving two masters at once, like it, it's kind of interesting too. There's, I, I, it's so difficult to try to figure this all out. Right. Because you hear from people that say, well, if the Knicks want to ever entertain the idea of signing free agents again, you know, or signing a major free agent, uh, a la how they did Amari, which obviously that didn't work out for its own reasons, but it sort of did in the sense that it attracted another star. But at any rate, you know, you get people that say, well, the Knicks need to show some progress on the court. They need to do like what the Nets did and, you know, start showing progress year over year. Um, and eventually put themselves in a position to either sign a big player or potentially trade for a big player, but more than likely, you know, sign one um, if they want to keep some of the players that they developed and, and, you know, can maintain cap space and all that. And so that would require trading for Chris Paul or signing a Danilo Gallinari or something like that. But then, you know, to your point too, there's like the whole issue of having to look forward to these, to these drafts and like part of the way that you build a really good team in the NBA is that, and particularly one where you can take advantage of like windows and stuff, so to speak, is that you draft, you find a way to draft someone who plays well above their rookie contract. And that gives you a huge value and then allows you to go out there and spend more on free agents to surround that person who's playing on a deal that they have no business playing on that pays them entirely too little. And like the Knicks just don't, I think have that guy on the roster yet. And I don't think that unless they, you know, to your point, kind of say, okay, like, let's do this development thing next year. I don't know that they're going to be able to, you know, get to the point where they would be able to draft one of the top guys next year, short of having some really good luck. But like, if you trade for Chris Paul and you sign, say, Gallinari, probably a decent chance, you know, in a shortened season where injuries could either become more or less of an issue, depending on if guys do get injured or not, uh, you know, could end up with the Knicks in the playoffs, which then obviously completely tanks the idea of getting to the top of the lottery. Um, so it's it's like this weird thing of trying to figure out where to put your priorities. But I think lately, especially considering we now are starting to get a picture of just how short next season is going to be, I, you know, it's, they're talking anywhere from the season starting from January to March. And I can't, I would imagine that they probably want to try to get back to business as usual next year. And that because of the Olympics as well, you know, they're going to want to probably end by the summer as per usual. So if you're only going to run a, a 30 game season or something like that, you don't then get that luxury that the Knicks have had for so many years of being like, 
I call it a luxury. It's more been like a curse, but where that, you know, they come out for the first few weeks and they say, Ooh, we made some somewhat good signings this summer. We think we can, you know, compete for a playoff spot. And, you know, they come out and then they stink it up, but then it takes a little too long for them to figure out that they have no shot. And they basically wait until they're like literally mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. And then for the last 20 or so games, which obviously we got robbed of this year, they, wind up playing the young players and actually sort of giving those guys a shot to develop. So, you know, if we go into next year and it's only going to be a 30, maybe 40 game NBA regular season, I don't think the Knicks really have the luxury with so many guys that whose you know, rookie contract clocks are ticking away to go out there and be like, let's, let's throw Chris Paul and Danilo Gallinari out there and see what happens. And, you know, my opinion kind of somewhat changes on this depending on the wind, but as of right now, the, the shorter next season shows to be, the more I'm thinking, like, I think the Knicks should really just lean into development next year and say the record doesn't matter. Let's try to get one of these top players that's going to be coming out in the draft and go from there. Um, but I, I'm sure that that's probably part of what your, what your sort of overall thinking is with them as far as that. But that's sort of like where my brain's been at lately. Yeah, I think that... Um one of the interesting things about the Knicks is they have so many um, built-in advantages. Like, you don't have to worry about signing a major free agent in Danilo Gallinari. Like, you could be in the Devin Booker sweepstakes. You could be in the Carl Anthony Towns sweepstakes. These are things that, like, you get to be in because you're the New York Knicks. All you have to do is get to, like, a level of foundational competence shown through years of having a larger plan and not doing panic things. Like, you've built the framework of what appears to be, like, a solid team. If you can just, you know, let Tibbs and the people that he's hired do a good job. Um, the other thing is, like, if you were to pick a perfect time to tank, it'd be the team you only have to see 30 or 40 times. This is an 82 games of, like, uh, you know, the the third-year process Sixers when things are really ugly. This is, you know, 80, not even 80 games, 40 games of a team that's learning and is probably going to do the right things, but is just going to make a couple too many mistakes or have, you know, usages a little too far out of whack to lose games by 5 or 10. Um, like, Tibbs teams are never going to be uh, like terrible losers. They'll always have some gallantry about them. But like to me, this just seems like a, a perfect lining up of incentives to have a year where the kids get five too many minutes, or you know, if there's a bad run, you don't call a timeout early. You leave them in for four extra possessions. Like that's all that tanking really has to mean. It doesn't have to mean you know play guys who who shouldn't be in the league. It just means that like you extend the leash out a little bit longer and. Oops, accidentally, it might have cost us, you know, four points in this quarter. Yeah, and, and that's that's a point I've been making fairly often. I mean, barring the addition of Chris Paul and to a lesser degree, Fred Van Bleet, it shouldn't be difficult for the Knicks to lose a lot of games. Like, there doesn't have to be, I mean, outside of your offseason decision-making, there doesn't have to be a lot of intentionality about it. Like, right now, the Knicks have bottom five, bottom six roster in the NBA. I mean, I would, I, I'd come pretty close to arguing bottom five. I think I think that's about where they are. And you don't add a lot other than, to your point, just enough shooting to make things a little bit easier on these guys um, and maybe um, a little bit more defense to ensure that Mitchell Robinson can stay on the court and isn't having to contest a like high-quality shot every single possession. Uh, that that could be enough to land you in the top five. And with the new lottery odds, I mean, who, who knows? And, and to your point on this draft, um, even as long as you're guaranteed like a top eight or nine pick, uh, odds are you're going to end up with someone who – maybe could have gone number one in this year's draft. And that's pretty exciting. 
All right, uh, we want more PD2, but you're not going to get it today. We're going to come back with him tomorrow in a part two of this episode where we get into the specifics of why Patrick Williams is not just the perfect fit for the Knicks right now, but he's the perfect fit for the Knicks in five years. Then we get into his Florida State teammate, Devin Vassell, for a really interesting conversation about what he brings to the team and why his specific brand of defense wouldn't necessarily make the Knicks better from day one, but, but also why he's a genius on that end of the floor and it could maybe help them down the road. We get into Isaac Okoro a little bit. And, and finally, PD's favorite prospects for the Knicks to target um, at the end of the first round with the Clippers pick and into the second round. All that and more tomorrow on Locked on Knicks.